When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The world has changed. Can you feel it in the water? Can you feel it in the earth? Amazon Prime Video's The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power is finally here, and it is time to embark on an unexpected journey back into Middle-earth. Welcome to All Rings Considered, Entertainment Weekly's podcast all about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and The Rings of Power. My name is Devin Kogan. I'm a senior writer here at Entertainment Weekly, and I am so excited to be here with my co-host, the other member of our fellowship, EW writer Christian Holub. Christian, welcome back to Middle-earth. I'm so excited to be here with you, Devin, to be back in Middle Earth when I'm watching my uh, Amazon Prime video. And I'm excited to be on a consistent podcast with you. I've, I've done some celeb shots on Dagobah Dispatch. Um, I've jumped in there on EW Star Wars podcast, but you'll have a harder time getting rid of me on this one. We are stuck together on a raft going over the ocean of this new show and hoping that a giant uh, sea dragon doesn't destroy us. We are headed into the Sundering Seas. Um, <laughs> that is the, the the purpose of this podcast. Um, we are we are so excited to be officially launching All Rings Considered. Um, if you've fallen, followed along with some of EW's previous podcasts, we've got our Star Wars podcast, our House of the Dragon podcast, and we are so excited to be diving into all things um, the Rings of Power with the the first two episodes premiering um, premiered September second on Amazon Prime Video. I like to think that this show is inspired by our conversations on Slack for the past five years, but not tied to any specific conversation or discussion, but kind of the spirit of the world of Lord of the Rings fandom that we've had together. I was going to say, Christian and I have long been the resident Tolkien nerds at Entertainment Weekly. We are the people who will talk your ear off about the Silmarillion. Um, but also, you know, our goal for this podcast is to to take a deep dive each week into this particular era of, of Middle Earth as, as Amazon explores the Second Age and brings a new chapter of Tolkien's epic story to television. You know, each week we will be breaking down a new episode of the show. Um, we'll be diving into the lore. We'll be doing some theorizing. And we will be joined by the cast and creative team of the Rings of Power, talking about all the behind-the-scenes details of, of bringing this show to life. Um, today, we will be getting into the first two episodes of the Rings of Power, which have officially launched. So if you haven't watched those yet, press pause, go watch them, and come back and join us because we will be getting into a lot of spoilers. We will also be joined later on, on by the High King of the Elves himself, Benjamin Walker, who plays King Gilgalad, along with the series executive producers, Lindsay Weber and Callum Green, to talk all about bringing the series to life. But first off, you know, Christian and I are going to talk a little bit about the show. This is something that we have been waiting for for such a very long time. It's been about five years since this show was first announced. I can tell you exactly where we were when it was first announced. We were sitting in a Shake Shack in uh, Brooklyn <laughs> in November 2017, having having seen... Uh, Blade Runner 2049. 
I thought it was Thor oh. Ragnarok. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was some, but it was something, and we were so excited to hear that they would be embarking on this this new series. And Devin was crying. I I was crying a little bit. <laughs> I will, because I was just overwhelmed. I mean, like I as you a were. lifelong Lord of the Rings fan, I was like, I can't believe they're they're diving back into this. And I think we had a lot of questions about, okay, what is the show going to be? What's it going to look like? And now it's finally here, and we get to talk about it. Um, so the show is set during Tolkien's second age, which is a period of Middle-earth history. Um, Tell us about the second age. What excited you most when we figured out that this was what the show was going to be about? Yeah, I was just about to say, you know, back when we first found out and and I kind of had the pleasant experience of being next to you when the news broke, just like I was next to one of my longest, deepest Star Wars fans in a college class when the Lucasfilm, uh, when Disney bought (laughs) Lucasfilm. It's always a treat to, to experience those with people who really care about them. And I think, yeah, back then, you know, I'm the kind of fan who who tends to be a little more resistant or ambivalent to news of a reboot or whatever, just because, you know, I don't want rehashing. I I grew up with the Star Wars prequels, so I know that it can be a mixed blessing. But of all the possibilities of what this show could have been, I think the form that it has ultimately taken um, is perhaps as, as interesting as it could have possibly been. A sequel to Lord of the Rings doesn't really make sense. Tolkien himself tried it and never really got anywhere, not least because it's supposed to be like the founding of the modern world. So like the modern world is the sequel to Lord of the Rings. But yeah, but you know, you could do, and you've discussed this in your reporting, there was a pitch for a young Aragorn show at one point. And anything in that vein would have felt really silly. What's great about setting this show in the second age is that between Tolkien's works, basically the Silmarillion takes place from the beginning of time through the end of the first stage, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings take place at the end of the third age and take us through the end of the third age. The second age therefore exists and it is referenced in the timelines and indices that Tolkien put together, but it's not tied to any specific narrative. It's like this in between space. So that means that there's just a lot of narrative freedom. There's a lot to mess with there, which I know is that is this is what the producers have said about what interested them about it. And, you know, but even so building up to the show, I just didn't know what it was going to be. And so I'm, I'm excited. And so, you know, we've been talking about it for a while, obviously it was making the rounds at Comic-Con and stuff this summer and I was interested, but I knew I needed to see it. And now that I've seen it, um, I think it really is, interesting and and is taking this freedom, the freedom of the second age in all kinds of directions. Um, And I think this will come up as we go into discussing what happens in these episodes. But I was really interested by the general tone, which is like, you know, the land Middle Earth is in relative peace and prosperity. There's no active dark lord threatening everything. But also several people are uneasy and there's this, and you as the reader know that a horrible war is coming and that this peace will not last. So it's this really interesting kind of mood, I think, that the that the show exists in, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And, you know, the, one of the things that I think is the the challenge about making the show, and this is something the showrunners and the, the producers have talked a lot about, um, is that, you know, you sort of have all these different audiences. How do you make a show that works for people who are total newbies to Lord of the Rings? And this is their first foray into, into Middle Earth. Maybe they saw the Peter Jackson movies. Maybe they didn't. They have some cultural familiarity, but this is like their first time in it. 
And then how do you also please the people who have been, you know, pouring over Tolkien's works for, you know, decades? And, you know, are, I'm sitting here, I've got my replica of Sting, Bilbo's sword, <laughs> hanging on the wall next to me as I'm recording this. Um, how do you sort of juggle that? And how do you tell a story where, you know, it is, again, Tolkien kind of sketched out the broad strokes of this story, but he never, you know, it's not a true narrative with, you know, like a first act, a second act, third act, etc. Um, and so there is something really really magical about about these first two episodes. So so let's get into this. You know, we're our goal for this podcast, I think, is very similar to the goal of the show itself. You know, we want to get into all the lore and get into all the 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 stuff, but we also want this to be really accessible and, you know, use this as sort of a, a jumping off point and explainer. I will say I will be astounded. Like I'm a, I'm astounded by the possibility that anybody is watching this as like their first Lord of the Rings screen experience. That's true. And they very well could be. Anybody could be watching anything at any time. There's lots of people alive now who weren't alive when the Peter Jackson movies were in theaters. So if that describes you, if you've only heard about Lord of the Rings and you've decided to see what Middle Earth's all about with Rings of Power, my hat's truly off to you. Uh, we're going to try to do our best, I think, like the show, to make this all sensible to... If you're a casual viewer and you want to learn more, um, we want to explain that without, um, you know, droning on or getting nerdsplaining or anything. Um, but if you are a nerd who knows their way around the legendarium, hopefully we'll, um, you know, we'll provide you some insights and, and interesting conversation as well. Yeah, there's there's so much to discuss. And I think... I mean, so let's get into this, these first two episodes. Um, you know, this is our our intro into this show that people have been talking about for years and years. Um, you know, they've, they've spent the last couple of years filming it down in New Zealand, um, sort of saying, well, it's not really this, it's not really this, you'll just have to wait and see. And well, now we've seen it. Now we know yeah. what it looks like. And I mean, gut reactions, I I have my thoughts, but but Christian, I want to hear from you I, as like as somebody who has been, you know, tracking the show and, and as, a, as a fan of this, this genre and specifically Tolkien's work, what was it like for you to watch these, these, these first two episodes? You know, I think that it is, I'm really hit by the newness of it. So far, I'm not really feeling much nostalgia, which is fine because that's not really what I want to feel like it, so far it, it is not tripping over itself to make direct homages or allusions to the Peter Jackson films. At least that's what I think. And not least because the perspective characters in Lord of the Rings are hobbits who don't exist yet. Not just that Frodo Baggins hasn't been born yet, but like hobbits, the Shire, that civilization hasn't really come into being yet. And the focus of Certainly the first episode, and, and they're a big part of the second episode, are the elves. And that's what uh, I think I'll be talking a lot of, about because they, the depiction of the elves in this show interests me so much. But they're very different than the elves we know in Lord of the Rings. The elves in Lord of the Rings, if you, would, if you could think of one word to describe them, it would probably be tired. They're very, <laughs> they're very over it. They're mostly whining. They're like any you know, old people get off my lawn. Like they're just like they. They're like Middle it, Earth used to be so much. It cooler. used to be so cool. It's, it used to be so much better. They're the hipsters of Middle Earth. They really are. They're very much like God. If you guys were just here like a thousand years ago, the world was filled with so much magic and is so yeah. great. But by the time of the, that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't. Um, necessarily understand or like recognize about Lord of the Rings. And this is something I, I got into in my my conversation with um, the executive producer, Lindsay Weber, whereas 
by the time of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, Middle Earth is almost post-apocalyptic. You right. know, there's this idea that all of the great kingdoms and all of the great, um, you know, uh, civilizations have all fallen into ruin. Um, you know, there's very peaceful places like the Shire, but as a general rule, there's all these statues and crumbling watchtowers everywhere, you know, pointing to how great everything used to be. Yeah, and the Second Age is showing th these things at their, at their height. We get to see Casa Doom, the realm of the, the dwarves. We get to see the great elven kingdom of Linden. Later on, we'll get into the uh, great island kingdom of Numenor. Yeah, but um, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> playing that one close to the chest. No Numenor so far. No, Numenor is, is still still old. No, no new Numenor. Um, but but that's one of the things that's so fascinating about this, and I think we see this in you know the elves and the dwarves, and you know by the time we see Khazadum in the Mines of Moria in the Lord of the Rings, it's it's a tomb. It's all dusty. Nobody's swept or vacuumed in there for for years. Yeah, the famous poem Ozymandias about um, coming upon this old statue that's fallen to ruin in the middle of the desert basically happens to Frodo and Sam every five minutes. Like, they live that poem every day that they're traveling to Mordor. They're constantly <laughs> tripping over statues. Oh, I wonder what that was. Some big stone head? Hmm, I don't know. Exactly. And you hear Aragorn talking about, oh, man, I'll never live up to my ancestors. They were so cool right. and so great yeah. and so regal. And like, I'm just like some dude who lives in the woods. And so it, right. that's one of the things that's so exciting about the Second Age is getting to see all of those those pieces of it. Um, now, because of the the nature of Lord of the Rings, you know, we, we do have immortal characters. We do have characters who we have met before or have heard about or who have played, you know, roles in, in Lord of the Rings. You know, most prominently, uh, we have more with Clark as Galadriel, played by Kate Blanchett in the in the Peter Jackson films, and we have um, Robert Arameo as as Elrond, who is played by Hugo Weaving in those same films. But then we also have a bunch of other characters that are sort of like mentioned in Tolkien's work. You know, we hear about uh, King Gilgalad. We hear about you know some of the Numenorians, all of these different characters. Christian, for you, like what were the the, the standout characters you were like most excited to see like back on screen, like familiar faces that you were like really excited for? You know, I was keeping my, my expectations, I was keeping very ambivalent, but I can tell you what the results were, which is that Galadriel is a character that I have always had a lot of trouble wrapping my head around, as I think is pretty, maybe not an uncommon experience. She's pretty enigmatic, and however enigmatic she is in the books, Blanchett's performance increases that a hundredfold. And very ethereal. It, perhaps almost too much. Like, Galadriel in the movies has always seemed, like, weirdly sinister to me, or, like, not even that, but just, like, she really gets across the weirdness of immortality, that, like, this, this person doesn't think the way you do, and, like, you don't know how, what they're all about. So Galadriel's always been like that, and she is in the books as well. And so in the show, I'm still feeling that from her as the characters around her are also. You know, if I was going to say the character I'm kind of, um, I feel most warmly to so far, it's definitely Arameo's Elrond. And thinking about this, you know, I think we should put on our Silmarillion hats for a little bit because <laughs> that's how the first episode starts with Silmarillion stuff and they go back to it in the second episode in the same way that the Silmarillion, it doesn't really come up in the Jackson movies, but the way it comes up in Lord of the Rings itself, which is like as this history and stories that the characters of this world know. And, and in this show, they're even closer to it in time than Lord of the Rings. Like they have Fionor's hammer and they 
Uh, what I'm all trying to say is that even though you don't need to have read this, I mean, you should read the Silmarillion, but if you haven't read the Silmarillion, because it rules, it's the best. <laughs> I mean, it's literally so good. There are a few things where like the reputation is so out of whack with the actuality of it as the Silmarillion. But anyway, but if you know that history as an, it, there's an added layer to everything. And I was thinking about this where like Galadriel in the show is very imperious and ambitious and not really listening to other people because she's kind of on this track. She's still kind of stuck in the wars of the Silmarillion and what happened to her brother there and and still has this insatiable need for revenge to the point that she literally turns away from the gates of heaven because this loss and the absence of her brother burns her so deeply. And by contrast, Elrond is a much more pleasant presence to be around. Everybody seems to get along with him. He has these relationships with the dwarves that we'll get into. I love that he's a writer and a, and a poet. Like he's, he's the character we see writing in a book at the beginning of the show in the same way that, that Bilbo is at the beginning of the movies. But he, you know, he is a sweet summer child by comparison. Like but he wasn't really alive during the Silmarillion. And, and he, I guess he was there at the breaking of Thangorodrim, but you know, he didn't go through it the way Galadriel did. You know, he maybe didn't have to stack all the empty helmets on top of each other in the middle of the battlefield. And I think you can see that in their performances. It's all a way of saying, like, so far I like Elrond the most, but I also understand why he and Galadriel are where they are in the story. And I and I think those the writing and the performances is good. I was excited to see Gil-Galad because he, we, you, you hear a lot about him, but never really seen him in a story before. Uh, Because he comes after the Silmarillion and before Lord of the Rings. Um, We only get a little bit of him so far, but uh, I really like what we've seen of him so far. Definitely not done talking about the elves, but I'll throw it back to you. Yeah, I mean, let's so let's talk about the elves. Let's talk yeah. about sort of that first episode in particular. You know, I think um, the first episode is has a very you know kind of difficult task of sort of like setting up. Okay, here's where the story is set. Here are some of the major players. We're going to sort of give you like get, it's almost like a little bit of a prologue. You know how Jackson's uh, Lord of the Rings um, starts with a, a prologue narrated by by Kate Blanchett's Galadriel, where she sort of lays out. Okay, here's how the rings were created. Here's how Sauron rose rose to power. They cut the ring from his hand. Gollum found it. Here's like here's your basically your prologue. Right. And the show does something similar where it's sort of, you know, we get to see little baby Galadriel. We see her in um, you know, basically Valinor. she was born in Valinor, which is sort of the elves version of almost like a Valhalla or or it's basically a heaven. Um and after Dark Lord Morgoth, who everybody talks about throughout these first two episodes, you know, basically destroyed the two trees, stole the Silmarils, they sailed to, to Middle-earth to go fight him. Um, it took, you know, centuries to overthrow him, but finally they did. But it took a huge amount of effort. A lot of people died, including Galadriel's brother. And while the rest of Middle-earth is sort of trying to, to rebuild and move on, Galadriel is still very much haunted by that whole experience. And, you know, she's one of the older elves. She was actually born in Valinor as opposed to being born in Middle-earth. And uh, I, I think it's it's tricky kind of thing to pull off narratively, but I think it really works. I think it sort of really gets you invested in, okay, this is a totally different time period. Here's the basics of what you need to know to make to make this story work. Um, and then we're going to kind of throw you into it and see, see kind of where things go. Right. And like, for example, I'm watching it being like, well, of course, the elves weren't really born in Valinor. They were born uh, next to the waters of Kuvinin in the right, east exactly. of Middle Earth. And then they went to Valinor for a little bit. <laughs> but that's me. And shout out to uh, all the nerds out there. But, um, you know, th- that you might describe as extraneous information for the story. Right. That's the thing. 
But there are things like, and I mean, we got to talk about this, like you say in the show say that Morgoth destroyed the two trees. But of course, what we know is that Morgoth recruited the spirit of darkness on Goliath, mother of Shelob and all other monsters. We got to talk about Ungoliant. Because she's in, like, it looks like her because... That's what, that's how she did it. She ate the trees because she was this literally, liter- speaking of insatiable, literally this insatiable spirit of darkness. And the way that they animate the two trees being destroyed, I was like, that's what it would look like. Like that's Ungoliant eating them from the bottom. I freaking loved it. I love that stuff too. Even though it's like two seconds. I know. That's the thing. It's like, this is two seconds of the show. But if you've read The Silmarillion, you know that before the sun and the moon existed, there were these two trees of light. Um that basically lit the entire world and they were destroyed by Morgoth and he recruited this giant dope ass spider named Ungoliant who was so hungry that she basically tried to eat the whole world. She ate the trees and then she tried to eat Morgoth too. Yes. And, and he uh, could only fight her off with like 10 Balrogs. He was, that's why you don't make uh, deals with crazy giant spider ladies. Um, but I identify with Ungoliant cause I am also insatiably hungry all the time. <laughs> um, but again, these are like all these like fun little details that are, you know, for people like, like us we're like oh yeah it's the two trees where's where's my girl and goliath but yeah. i also think they do a really good job of making the story work if um you don't need to know about Ungoliant to watch the show but exactly i do love her very much but like yeah but that's what i'm saying like even just the way like okay well, you don't need to know Ungoliant, but you do need to know that the two trees are destroyed and we're going to show the two trees being destroyed in the way it would happen if Ungoliant was there i mean there's also only so much and we can get into this there's clearly a deliberate choice and i very much understand it that it's kind of always the problem with the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion is like, how much can you talk about Morgoth without overshadowing Sauron? And especially in this story where Sauron is, a, is going to be a real presence of like, even though we haven't seen him yet or anything, like they find his handprint on a stone. Like he is a physical presence in the physical world, making an impact. Unlike in the Lord of the Rings movies where he exists essentially symbolically that's kind of what Morgoth has to be in this, except even more so. Like, because if you show him, then everything else pales, like he is evil itself. So like everything else will pale in comparison to him. So if you're still, and I think that's what's interesting about, you know, the whole thing with Galadriel's brother is that gives you personal stakes on Sauron. So, okay, you need to know about Morgoth because you need to know how this all happened, but it keeps your eyes on the prize that, that Sauron is the bad guy and, and who we're focused on, not least because Morgoth is literally he is outside of existence at this point. So I guess it makes sense. But yeah, it's, um, I was definitely interested by, by that choice. Yeah, I think the the first episode in particular has to do a lot of table setting. Um, it sort of has to say, okay, this is the time period we're in. Um, there was this great war. Um, the elves overthrew uh, Morgoth. And basically, if Morgoth was Satan, then Sauron is sort of Beelzebub. He's sort of the lieutenant, the, the second in command. Um, not nearly as powerful, but still a generally bad dude. And so that sort of is the, the entire premise of the show. You know, what we know from Tolkien's writing is we know it's the rise of Sauron to power. You know, him not just as a lieutenant, but as a, you know, a bad guy in and of himself. The forging of the Rings of Power, which we meet uh, the people most responsible for that, uh, Celebrimbor, played by Charles Edwards in a very luxurious velvet robe that I'm a big <laughs> fan of. Um, and then uh, the the rise and fall of the island kingdom of Numenor, which we will get into in the coming episodes. 
and eventually the the last alliance of, of elves and men to to sort of team up and uh, you know try to overthrow Sauron once and for all. Don't expect that to happen in season one, though. I think we can safely say exactly. So that's one of the the interesting things is so right now they have a five season plan. They they sketch this out as their their goal is for it to be five seasons, and we see this in the first two episodes. It's very much about sort of evil is lurking in the corners, you know, there, there's, there's whispers, yeah. um, you know, we, we see Galadriel journey deep into the frozen North searching for, for traces of evil. We see things are, are starting to be afoot in the Southlands. Oh, the Southlands. I've never heard of that part of middle earth before. Yeah. Maybe it was a different name when you know it later. <laughs> That's the thing. So, so let's, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the Southlands plot. Yeah. And this is good to do table setting because I just wanted to add, this is obviously why they focus on the elves so much, particularly in episode one, but, but into episode two and like, and, and are slowly rolling out everything else. If we haven't gotten to Numenor yet, it takes until episode two for the dwarves. You know, episode one is mostly elves and the Hobbit ancestors. And then there's a little bit with the humans in the Southlands, um, because it's like, those are the characters whose names you know. Almost everybody else is going to be an original character for this series, not least because human lifetimes, they'll be long dead by the time of Lord of the Rings, you know? But, like, we know Elrond, we know Galadriel. Depending on your knowledge level, you maybe know Gilgalad. And then all I'll say is that what's really interesting about that is that those characters are different than we know them. Um, and, like, you know, we've been saying that a little bit, but it's funny because it comes up that, you know, the elf timeline compared to everybody else, the 20 years for Elrond doesn't seem like a long time. And yet Durin has gone through all this stuff in that time. And it feels like a big deal to him. And, you know, 20 years isn't a big deal to an elf, but 200, 500, those years can clearly change elves. And, and Elrond will have changed a lot. We're seeing him at this very kind of youthful, romantic, he's like, clever and quippy and, and charming. Um, and not just like, <sighs> <laughs> like old dad of, of Lord of the Rings. So I liked that. Yeah, Elrond in Lord of the Rings is just like, Ugh, you want to date my daughter? Ugh, men are trash. Men are weak. Like, just, right. just he's constantly grumpy. He's like, I have seen so much nonsense. I saw yeah. a Sildur fail to throw the ring in Mount Doom. Yeah. And I have this human trying to date my daughter. Like, it's very hard to be Elrond. But this Elrond, he's, like, full of life. And he, like, yeah. is, like, he's kind of young. He's not really in power yet. Um, right. He's not an elf lord. You get the sense that he's still kind of, you know, he's still kind of trying to make his way in the world. He can go run away and read by himself. Exactly. He can go bit. read in a tree, which <laughs> don't we all dream of, of reading in a tree? Absolutely. But, no, yeah, I really love the the portrayal of the the elves that we get to meet in these these first couple episodes. Um, you know, I, I love... I really like more with Clark as Galadriel. I think she's fantastic. I think she has like a warmth, but also kind of like a, a steely fury that I think is so much fun. Um, you know, I think some people, you know, some, some casual fans online have been like, why are they making Galadriel like a badass warrior lady? And it's like, uh, cause she kind of is that. I mean, she's right. incredibly powerful. She's a leader. Um, she has had a hand in, in a lot of battles. One of my favorite lines from the Silmarillion is where, you know, she talks about wanting to to see the wide unguarded lands and and rule a realm at her own will and and you know running to adventure and and have you know seek out evil and and you know she has this this sense of you know duty and so i i really like her performance i love 
Robert Aramayo as Elrond. Um, and I really like uh, the introduction of Ismael Cruz Cordova as Arandir, who is a new character who we meet keeping watch over, over the Southlands. Um, and that I thought was a really interesting kind of storyline to set up where basically the elves are almost like the oppressive watchmen over over this this area because the humans centuries ago aligned themselves with evil and the elves are sort of there to keep watch over and make sure that you know everything is okay but there is this this tension between humans and elves that that you you see and I think it's a really I um that was the storyline that I didn't know what to expect going in because this is very much an invention for the show but I I found it very um you know a really fascinating narratively. And I think Ismail gives an incredible performance um, as Erendir immediately. I was, I was like, Oh, I like this guy. I, mm-hmm. I can't wait to see what he does. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost like, you know, you don't want to go too far in, in real world comparisons or whatever, but, um, and a lot changes in middle earth between the first war against Morgoth and, and the later wars against Sauron. But yeah, it's a little bit like, you know, it just reminds me a little bit of like, between the world wars and real history. And, and as always, like, you know, after a war's over, these questions of how do you prevent a war from happening again? But for some people, that's not the main goal. And sometimes the main goal is getting revenge for things that happened in the last war. And, and the ways that you handle those questions can decide whether a war happens again. And, and you see it with elf cops, you know, watching over these, these humans whose dads or granddads or whatever, like, uh, agreed to be Morgoth's slave so they wouldn't die. And you see that with Galadriel refusing to go quietly into the night and, and refusing to give up this feud. It's interesting because they're kind of, you know, they're, they're talking, but they're definitely a little less talking, you know, as, as elves go, Arendir clearly seems, you know, a little more taciturn than our uh, poets and stuff. He's a man of few words. You know, it'll take a while to get to know them, but even by the end of the second episode, you know, you see him in action and, and we'll get to know him that way. But, you know, I guess I, I did want to ask you, what do you think about, because I love, the first thing that kind of hit me is like, oh, that's interesting, is is the moment when Galadriel comes back to Linden with her team uh, after finding Sauron's Arctic lab or whatever, and uh, his lab from the His thing. Fortress of Solitude. Yeah. And Gil-Galad's like, great, way to go, sending you to the Undying Lands, which I thought was great, like using heaven as a punishment in some ways. It reminded me a little bit of this sci-fi novel by Roger Zelazny called Lord of Light. That's kind of this like sci-fi mix of sci-fi, cyberpunk and like Buddhist mythology. And at the beginning of that book, the Buddha has been like allowed to reach Nirvana because then he can't help the people on earth or whatever. Like a little complicated, but like ascending to heaven as like, well, then you won't bother me anymore. So like (laughs) you can have eternal bliss or whatever. So I thought that was interesting on itself. And then I also thought, you know, the conversation between Gilgalad and Elrond, and he's like, well, I did that because you and I have had these visions that her looking for Sauron might actually empower Sauron instead of finishing him off. And in that light, her decision to not go into the Undying Lands, even though, of course, we know she's not going to because we know she's a character later, is so interesting and kind of tragic. But then it's also kind of fun because it's like, you know, we we don't see their visions. So like... Are they on the level? Is that maybe the right move to do? Are they dismissing her because she's a woman and she's female? Um, and so they, uh, you know, we, we boys know what's really going on. I was curious for your thoughts kind of 
Yeah, I I love this sort of the way this it sort of sends up this this tension between the the different elves. I think a lot of times um, when you read the Lord of the Rings, specifically, you see the elves through mostly through the perspective of you know like Frodo or Sam, and he's like, wow, they're so smart and they know everything, and we should listen to them all the time. They should always be in charge of everything. Right. You know, you read more about it, and you're like, no, there's a lot of like really stupid elves and elves who make yeah. dumb decisions and elves so who, you know, so dumb, <laughs> literally the entire, all of the events of the first age are just elves being just really like petty and being like, I, how dare you? I'm going to like start a blood feud. That's going to start for centuries. This is why the Silmarillion is amazing because it's yeah, elves it's, acting insane. Like it's young just, people. I've got a problem and I'm going to make it everyone else's problem. <laughs> so I feel like a little bit, Galadriel kind of fits in that thing where she's like, no, this is what I want and everybody else is going to have to like deal with it. I'm going to jump off a boat and have to swim back across the ocean. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I'm right. going to do it, <laughs> yeah. figure it out along the way. Um, and so I like this more like impulsive kind of Galadriel. I like the idea that she is so, you know, single minded and um because she, I, I love that line, and I think it's in the trailer where you know Elrond sort of dismisses her and is like, I, "I've seen things," and she's like, "You have not seen what I've seen." Basically, like he's hundreds of years old. Um, his dad literally like turned into a star. His brother like died. Like it's it's a whole like he has a whole crazy backstory. But Galadriel's like, "You ain't seen nothing. Like you have no idea by comparison." It's also like talking about prophecy versus lived experience like Elrond totally. has his gift of prophecy and something he shares with Gilgalad and they were talking about it like he sees far he sees things but Galadriel has seen stuff up close and you know there's that moment in the second episode which I know you must have loved without even talking about it I know you loved it because I loved it which is when he visits Celebrimbor's workshop and they're talking about our boy Fionor a little bit and oh yes okay let's explain that for people who are who are new to that yeah so before we go into that, and this is a great, this is a setup for that, is they see Fionor's hammer and, and Elrond's like, whoa, this belonged to Fionor, the real Fionor? Well, Galadriel knew Fionor and she knew <laughs> his sons, the worst dickheads in all of literature. Those are the people we're talking about who are the elves who are like, I'm destroying everything to settle my grudge. That was Fionor and his kids. And she is part of that generation. I don't know if you know, maybe the kid who threw the rock at her boat was probably one of Fionor's sons. Honestly, I believe it. They yeah, were 100%. That was yeah. 100% of Fionor's son. They were just yeah. like, oh, the worst. That's what they do. <laughs> Anytime anyone else is happy, they're like, well, what if I killed your boyfriend? <laughs> so, yeah. So, now let's explain who Fionor is. But that's just another interesting point of comparison between Gladriel totally. is older than Elrond. And she has seen some worse stuff. She's extremely, she's older than the moon. Like she's, right. she's super old. <laughs> she remembers one of his only stars. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Celebrimbor. He is played by Charles Edwards. Um, this is a character who a lot of people love. He's sort of been explored in, in different, you know, some of Tolkien's different writings. Um, this is the guy who basically, um, as we meet him, he's a master craftsman. Even Elrond is a little bit of a fanboy. He's like, oh my God, it's Celebrimbor. He makes such cool stuff. Oh my God, I want to make cool stuff like him. And he is descended from, from Fanor, who is arguably the greatest elvish 
craftsmen of all time. He created the Silmarils, which are three extremely powerful jewels that made the whole world fight over them for centuries because um, they were so beautiful. And here we see Celebrimbor. He's kind of, he's been around for a while. Um, you know, he's accomplished some great things, but he has a mind to, to accomplish even more. He wants to, you know, cement his legacy. We see him, you know, holding holding Fanor's hammer and basically like sort of like living, trying to live up to that legacy and create something um, that will not only, you know, is an amazing piece of artistic work, but will also like shape, you know, the very history of, of Arda and Middle Earth. And so I love the comparison of like, you know, Celebrimbor being kind of like old and world weary and Elrond being a little fanboy being like, hell yeah, what can we do? Like, I'm so in this. Like, I got yeah. some dwarf buddies, whatever you want to do. Like, let's make yeah. it happen. Um, what was it like for you to, to see Celebrimbor on screen? Well, jumping off right what you say, what you say, I think the casting is so, and the makeup and all that is so good at um, portraying these differences in their perspective. Celebrimbor has lines in his face and, and it has some character and texture and he's lived through stuff. And Robert Arameo is totally smooth and, and he's got his flowing hair and is like the picture of, you know, even though he's not young by human standards, he's young by all these other characters he's talking to. Um, and I guess you can see why maybe he ends up in turn being a little bit neglectful of his younger friends because he's like the youngest kid in a family or whatever who's like grown up around adults their whole life. And I like how that characteristic is portrayed between them. So yeah, I loved that world building. I, lo- I hope there's a reference. There's at least one Silmarillion reference in every episode because I do live for those. And I think like we're saying, it adds to the characterization and the, and the texture of the story. So let's talk about Elrond's trip to his dwarf friends. I think this is because I think our trip into Khazad-dûm is a great portrayal of what you're talking about. The Lord of the Rings is post-apocalyptic, perhaps more for the dwarves than anybody else, because all we see of khazad is like a ruin. And here there's like trees growing underground and they've got this whole culture and rituals that they do. Um, I really loved that. And I really loved kind of the point that Durin makes to Elrond. I, I think that's good both as a character beat between them and then also more world building and understanding that not all of these characters are on the same timeline, which I think will continue to probably um, provide drama and tension uh, as the show unfolds. Yeah, when Elrond first walks into Cause of Doom, that was the the moment of watching the show that, that first made me gasp. Uh, that was just seeing Cause of Doom in all of its glory. I love that there's running water, there's there's greenery yeah. running out underground. The production design is so lavish and beautiful. And so far, one of the things I've really loved about this show is they do such a great job of exploring all of these different corners of Middle Earth. You know, I think yeah. a lot of, you know, Tolkien is sort of the, the Lord of the Rings is sort of the um, blueprint for every fantasy story that's come from the last 75 years. Um, and I think a lot of like shows and a lot of film adaptations sort of have like generic fantasy look, you know, yeah. where it's just sort of like they look generically like a, I don't know, like a page from a Dungeons and Dragons um, manual or something. And the thing I, I really admire about the show is that I love how, the dwarves feel lived in and the the elves feel lived in and everything feels so purposeful and and you you get the sense of there are all these different cultures and i'm i'm sure we'll get that even more when we get into numenor and so yeah i just i loved getting everything with the dwarves was so much fun i think you know a lot of times the dwarves are played for comic relief in some of the peter jackson adaptations which i think yeah. you know works quite well you know gimli is a, inherently a goofy character and, and, you know, has some, some great moments, but I, I feel like there's a sense of like, I don't know, like a, a 
regal quality to the dwarves and a, and a sense of, you know, they, they can be warm and funny and goofy, but they also like, there is this sense of power and strength that I think is really cool to see on screen. That was something that I really kind of geeked out over a little bit. I was like, oh, I want to spend so much more time here. Like, I love everything that we're introducing here. And I, I want to spend so much time in Casa Doom. Especially in the Hobbit movies, which we do not need to get into very much, but just like there's a struggle, I think, with portraying the dwarves more than there is with the elves because Tolkien elves are so distinct and so separate from, you know, the goofy kind of cultural depictions of elves. The dwarves, it's a finer line to walk. And the Hobbit is crazy in this regard because in that movie, like there's a dozen dwarves and some of them are like human-esque heroes and romantic figures and some of them might, might as well be disney cartoons and you know it'll be interesting to see where the show lands on that because obviously Durin is styled in this very loud and, and colorful way with a big bushy red beard and yet so far you know not least because of his relationship with elrond i also buy him as a real character um and so i hope that they continue doing that the dwarves clearly you know i think it's they live underground and they work hard, but they also, you know, have their own culture and life and, and family and stuff. So I think it's definitely possible to, to have them be funny or, or at least charming um, while also not making them cartoonish or, or denigrating them at all. So far, we've mostly just seen Durin and his family. I don't know how many other named dwarves we'll see. His father, the king, presumably at some point. Um, but yeah, I'll be interested to see how they strike that balance. And I guess maybe the next place to go an even more kind of disconnect between the show's version of this group and the one we're used to uh, would be the Harfoots. You read my mind um, <laughs> where, you know, I, I think we, I would love to close this out by talking a little bit about the Harfoots and doing a little bit of theorizing. Yeah. Um, so if you're, you know, uh, there are no hobbits in this show. Um, I think that's something that that's, you know, if you're kind of a casual Lord of the Rings fan, I think that's something that might come as a surprise because when we think of Lord of the Rings, perhaps one of the most iconic things that people think about is the Shire and hobbits and their little hairy toed feet and, uh, you know, their big green doors and, and all of those things. Um, instead, we have what are called the Harfoots. Um, if you've read Tolkien's work, you know that there are sort of three predecessors before the hobbits uh, kind of existed and settled in the Shire. There were the Falahides, the Stores, and the Harfoots. Um, and so this show sort of focuses on one little tribe of Harfoots who are nomads. This is the first time we've ever seen anything kind of like this depicted on screen. You know, they don't play a major role in any of the of, of Tolkien's writings from the the Second Age, but they were there. You know, Tolkien did write that. You know, here's the history of of hobbits and their evolution. This was for me the biggest question mark going in because um, right. I was like, okay, I have a rough idea of what to expect with the elves and the dwarves and the Numenorians and all these other things. But I was a little bit like, okay, are they just sort of like shoehorning in like Hobbit adjacent storylines just to sort of like appeal to people a little bit? Yeah. And I wound up being very charmed by the Harfoots. I immediately was like, okay, I see what this is. Like from the moment they're on screen, I love the music. I love the production design. I love, you know, the styling. They sort of have these like beautiful caravans that they travel with um, where they have, you know, things in, you know, leaves in their hair and then like little disguises and things like that. And, um, you know, our main Harfoot is uh, Nori, played by Markella Cavanaugh, um, and her best friend Poppy, played by um, Megan Richards, who encounter a very mysterious figure who falls from the sky. So, which I think is probably the biggest question mark um, of the show so far. I mean, the show is a prequel. We have a rough idea of, so you know, 
We know Galadriel can't die because we've got, we know right. where she ends up in the third age. We know what Elrond's up to, but we don't really know what's up with this, this mysterious man who, who right. falls from the sky. So, so Christian, what was your take on, on, you know, this, they, they call him the stranger. That is his official name. The stranger. Yeah. Um, anyone who listened to our Twitter space that became our intro episode of the podcast uh, may recall that this was something I mentioned as something I was really interested in because I just, like Devin just said, I have no idea where it's going or what it means, but it's definitely very dramatic and interesting so far. I like that his meteor crashing is kind of matched against Galadriel's decision to turn away from the Undying Lands, um, which kind of almost makes it seem like he's some kind of traveler or dispatch from realms beyond. And then that really seems to be somewhat reinforced in the second episode where he's clearly a being of some considerable power who, when he gets agitated, can darken the skies and, and make the trees blow. Um, seems to have some proficiency with runes and symbols that um, create very painful voodoo magic on Nori's father. So, yeah, I'm really intrigued. And, and all the stuff with him, I think, is is really cool so far. We don't know where this is going, but that isn't going to stop us from speculating wildly. So let's let's do some speculating. Let's because right. I have my theory. Maybe we're on the same page. To me, there's seems perhaps more probable than the others. Explanation. So I think there's sort of two theories that they're setting up. Um, you know, yeah. one is that he is, um, they talk about the evils return to Middle Earth. You know, he's sort yes. of sinister. Are they setting him up to be the return of Sauron? Um, yeah. That doesn't quite hit with me. I don't think that's 100%. But he might be a Maya of some kind. I think there's another familiar figure who, uh, if you have seen the Lord of the Rings, um, is bearded and has a particular affinity for halflings. And yeah. we know he can speak to uh, insects. He speaks to moths as opposed to fireflies. He loves runes. He's got piercing, beautiful blue eyes. Do not take this guy for a conjurer of cheap tricks. I would say <laughs> that the darkening sky and blowing wind are reminiscent of of something we've seen before. Exactly. I think, you know, there's some question about, well, can this certain character show up at this time? But to that, I would say um, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. <laughs> he arrives precisely when he means to. Um, so I, I think I, if we're taking bets, episode one, yeah. we'll see if this is turns out. But I mean, it's got to be Gandalf, right? It's got to be Gandalf. I'm going to hedge my bets and say it's one of the Astari. So you're saying it might be, so there's five wizards. Um, there's five there's, wizards. There's Gandalf, there's Saruman, played by Christopher Lee in the in the movies. Um, there's yeah. Radagast, who we see in the Hobbit movies. And then there's the two unnamed blue wizards. My favorite mystery in Middle Earth. Who, who are, are the blue wizards? Yeah. They're hanging out somewhere. So he's probably not one of those because he's by himself. But, you know. you know, and this was something also I was going to say. It was very interesting to me that Sauron's symbology so far is a handprint. You, because obviously we are used to thinking of Sauron as an eye and the hand is the mark of Saruman. Um, so maybe Saruman was a little in my head from, from the handprint. Um, I might be, uh, you know, showing my underpants here, but I believe that there's a specific order the Astari arrive in and Gandalf might be last. But yes, uh, I think you're probably on the money, but they could also swerve and could be making us think it's Gandalf and actually it's Sauron. But so far, yeah, I think one of the Istari and, and probably Gandalf is, I think, the 
best bet here. And yet, even so, um, that doesn't really lessen the mystery or the excitement of the storyline for me at all. Like, I still have no idea where this is going or, or how this character in the state he's in will become a, a, any character that we recognize or are familiar with. Yeah, for me, it's less about kind of solving the puzzle box of who he is. I find that less interesting than the actual character arc. And, you know, I love this this arc that, um, you know, Nori goes on where she's, you know, sort of yearning for adventure. And it's it's mm-hmm. a very... It's a very Baggins-ish quality or a very Tookish quality um, of, of wanting to, to, you know, dreaming of maybe there's a little bit more, you know, out beyond the, the, the comfy Hobbit Harfoot lifestyle. And that it's the, you know, simplest, um, most modest halfling Hobbit creatures who end up tied up with the most powerful thing in Middle Earth at either time. Like, you know, finding the stranger, like finding the ring or something that that these humble creatures um, have some kind of connection to the great powers. That's something I've always loved about Tolkien's work specifically is how we have, you know, um, it's, you have great kings and, you know, people of great lineage and immortal beings and wizards and creatures, but you also have very ordinary people, you know, just people who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, I love, you know, everything we've seen with Nazanin Baniati playing Bronwyn. She's just a human living in the Southlands. So I'm, I'm, I like so far that the show is balancing everything that I love about Tolkien's work. And it feels, feels very true to that. Definitely. You know, I guess, I guess this is one thing I wanted to say that we hadn't really gotten to just about the Galadriel turning away from the Undying Lands is just such a resonant moment for me on, on multiple levels, both within the story and within the thematics of the story, but then even within the meta context of the story, um, you know, I think it's really interesting that the Lord of the Rings, the book and the Lord of the Rings, the movies end with the Undying Lands. You have to wait till the end of the story to, to see the characters pass in the Undying Land. And instead, we are exposed to them early in the first episode of this show. And it is specifically a choice of turning away from them, which is both Galadriel's choice as a character. And yet, to me, I think meaningful on a story level that, you know, Without this show existing, The Lord of the Rings has a beginning, middle, and end, and every character has their happy ending, either in the book itself or in the indices. And yet, you know, we are kind of taking Middle-earth and the Legendarium out of that happy ending and, and making it real and bringing it down to Earth once more with all the ups and downs that that means. And that's a scary thing to do, I think, as storytellers, but also very exciting, just as, you know, Galadriel at some level is is losing, you know, utopia, eternity and paradise um, in return for all the ups and downs of, of living in the world and living your life. And, um, you know, I think that that's a question throughout t- Tolkien's writings. And it just kind of struck me in that way uh, as I was watching it. Well, I am so excited. I don't know about you, but I am so excited to see where this series goes. I feel like I've been waiting for this for such a very long time. Yeah. So you've heard from us um, for our thoughts on the premiere. Uh, But up next, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, you can hear from the High King of the Elves himself, Benjamin Walker, and executive producers Lindsay Weber and Callum Green. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to All Rings Considered. Please enjoy my interviews with Benjamin Walker and producers Lindsay Weber and Callum Green. Hey, Ben, how's it going? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. It's great to talk to you again. Last time we talked was before Comic-Con. So I'm. how is it feeling now that you know people are actually starting to see this show and it's about to actually be out in the world? It's like there's life before Hall H and life after Hall H. I mean, we're so excited to share it. It's actually kind of a relief that um, there's so... It's such a part of the human condition to... They have opinions and form conclusions about something you haven't seen. And so I'm excited for people to see it so we can actually have a real conversation about it. Exactly. There's some, you've been working on this for you know several years now. It must be yeah. for it to be out in the world. Yeah. And then we start pre-production on Thursday for the second season. So let's go. You're right back into it. Um, so last time we spoke, um, you know, you talked about kind of, you know, how falling in love with this character of Gil Gallib, you know, he's one of those characters who sort of looms large throughout Tolkien's work, but has not really, you know, been depicted on screen with any depth. You know, you talked about how there's nothing casual about the King of the Elves. What was it about sure. him that that really kind of fascinated you and and most attracted you to this, this show in the first place? I like that he is one of the elves that chose to stay in Middle-earth. You know, they could return to Valinor, this kind of elvish Valhalla, or they can stay on this dark, dirty, disgusting rock where all the creatures that live there want to kill each other. And they do. They choose that. They have an affection for the frailty of man. They are aware of the insular nature of the dwarves and the inevitable resurrection of evil. But in spite of that, they love Middle-earth and want to stay there and shepherd it into the future. I love that they are so aware and also so hopeful. Yeah, there is a, we see that in the the first episode, um, you know, in the, where we see sort of, you know, him, he he recognizes Galadriel's struggle, but also, you know, that he is choosing hope, you know, I, and I love some of those scenes between him and Elrond played, played by Rob. Tell me a little bit about like what fascinated you about the relationship between Gilgalad and Elrond and, and sort of, you know, working with Rob on this. Well, he's the kind of leader that we wish we had in our daily lives and that he strives to bring out the best in those around him and that he leads in a way that a loving parent leads you know there's a point where you have to get out of the nest and it's horrifying and excruciating but if i don't push you out you can't fly and i think he feels the same way about elrond and also galadriel that he like middle earth accepts the complications of them and it and still strives to find the good in them and to bring out their potential. Yeah. And we see, you know, how did, how did you find, you know, like learning the Elvish language and some of like the, just, he has this very regal bearing about him. How did you sort of want to figure out like how he speaks and how he walks and how he moves so that he feels, you know, like you said, there's nothing casual about the King of the Elves. 
Well, Tolkien was a linguist initially, and I come from a theater background. You know, I mean, the poetry of a heightened text is something that I really enjoy. And, and elves in particular treat language almost as if it's a weapon of light in Middle Earth, you know, that they communicate on so many different levels. So in terms of learning Elvish selfishly, it's one of my favorite parts of the job. But as a tool for storytelling, they are thoughtful about everything that they do. And, um, you know, there are things in the first episode, particularly in those two relationships, there are things that you see in the first two episodes that, that won't come to fruition and that you won't understand fully until seasons to come. And I think that's a testament to our showrunners and to the density and intricacy of Tolkien's work, that it is a return to long-form storytelling. It is an investment on Amazon's part, but also these are the kind of stories that we as viewers want to see. And there's a dearth of them right now. A lot of shows, you know, you, you want to binge them and then be done with them. This isn't that. This is one that you can watch and rewatch, and every season just continues to blossom as we go forward. Yeah, and and like you said, you know, Gilgalad is a fascinating character because, again, he's such a huge part of the story that Tolkien wrote. You know, we hear Sam sings that song about him. He's mentioned quite frequently, but we don't really get like his inner life or his, you know, what was he like as a as a day to day person. For you as an actor. What helped sort of unlock him for you? How did you sort of, you know, uh, want to take this this person who's, you know, on the page, sort of this mythic figure, and then, you know, turn him into a, like, flesh and blood? Well, I think that is the clue. I mean, the Tolkien, particularly, for example, his parentage. There's some debate about his parents and where he comes from. And I don't think that's a negative thing. I like that Tolkien, particularly in uh, the appendices, you know, he contradicts himself and um, leaves things vague on purpose, you know, that there's something mysterious about Bill Gallet and that he's playing his cards very close to his chest. I mean, even today we've been doing interviews and so many different people have had, they've had a disparate reaction to, his relationship with Galadriel and that is he upset by it? Is he hopeful, you know, that, that it can function on multiple levels? And I like that about him. You know, he's certainly playing the long chess of what peace can be in Middle Earth and what it takes. Absolutely. And, you know, in those first few episodes, we get to see, you know, the elven realm of Linden, you know, with these beautiful golden trees and the seaside cliffs. What do you remember most about, you know, kind of stepping onto those sets for the first time? What what stood out to you the most? I mean, the most unique thing was that in spite of the leaves and the trees and the wind cannons and this army of craftspeople that have assembled to bring this story to life, it it. When it got down to it, it felt like I was in a guerrilla independent film and we were just all pouring over the script, standing in front of the camera, trying to milk every bit of Tolkienian magic out of it that we could. It felt like a college film sometimes where, you know, you're really collaborating in its purest sense. That was the most surprising. You'd think that with something with this scale and scope, you wouldn't have that freedom, but we really did and took full advantage of it. That's got to be magical to sort of, you know, get to, you know, carve out your own little corner of, of Middle Earth and, and work with this 
community? Because I imagine, I mean, you were all in New Zealand together. A lot of you were away from your homes and your families. From, you know, speaking to the cast, it sounds like you guys really, you know, kind of formed a fellowship of your own. Yeah, we did. And um, I mean, we are really all incredibly grateful and, and humbled by this opportunity. And I don't think we've wasted any of it, that we really get along and, and like each other and have made the best of it. And also, we feel incredibly lucky, not only to have a job, but to have had a job at a time when so many people were struggling to work, to be in a country that was so safe and to be embraced by such a beautiful people. I, you know, for us to have wasted that would have been a real shame. Absolutely. And so with the show, you know, finally here after, you know, all of these years, what are you most excited for people to see? What do you what do you hope people take away from, you know, these these first few episodes as they, you know, enter the world? I hope that it starts to erase or pacify any fears. You know, people I get asked a lot, um, do you feel pressure from the fans? And that's confusing to me because we are fans. Um, no one puts more pressure on us than we do ourselves. And, um, you know, A, I hope it reassures everyone who might be nervous. And B, best case scenario, they finish the season and go out and buy the books. That's the best possible scenario. You know, there's a there's a certainly a wealth of, of you know, information and, and world to dive into. Well, and it enriches the experience of people that are already fans, but also because it's so many years after the films and kind of the first chapter of Middle Earth, I, I hope that it encourages new fans and there'll be a whole new generation that this is their gateway into Middle Earth. And, and that to me is an honor. That's, that's pretty magical to be part of like a, like a whole new chapter, like you said. <laughs> exactly. And the first one, you can come at this with nothing or you can come at this with everything and pour over every episode over and over again and, and see the level of detail that, that's gone into it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Great. Well, thank you again for taking the time to speak with me and um, congratulations on the show. I know this has been a very long journey, so it's probably so exciting for it to, to be out there. Oh, it's been great. You know, like so often you do these junkets and, you know, part of what you're saying is true. Like maybe you get along with some of the cast and you're, you're trying to make it sound good. But this one we're actually all incredibly proud of. And it really has actually been a pleasure to talk about. I, I'm, I'm excited for people to see it. That's a gift. Absolutely. All right. Great. Well, th thank you again. It's great to thank talk you, to Devin. you again. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we're at Entertainment Weekly, and we are so excited to get to pick your brains about um, the first two episodes of Rings of Power. How are you guys feeling now that you've been working on this for such a long time, and now that the show is, you know, almost here? It's almost out in the world. Yeah, it's an exciting time, and thank you so much for having us. Um, I think at this moment we're feeling certainly excited and really grateful to have had this opportunity and, and for all the hard work of the thousands of people who stood alongside us to make it possible. So um, it's time. We're ready to show the world and, and talk about it with other people now. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm so excited to get into you know all the details from these first two premiere episodes. Um, but I kind of wanted to start big picture by talking a little bit about you know the second age itself. You know, I know I, I spoke to JD Payne and Patrick McKay, and they talked mm-hmm. about how that was always part of their pitch. How you know they were always fascinated by the second age. What was it about you know that particular era and and this particular story that that most excited you guys about you know bringing this to television? Well, they they certainly get all the credit for you know, identifying that as the story that, that wanted to be told. And they, they coined the phrase 50 hour mega epic. That is also their invention. Um, but I think as a fan, you know, I, I felt that it did have all the, the, the tales of the second age have all the things you, you sort of want out of a story in middle earth. They're both sweeping and intimate and, um, heartbreaking and exciting and all the things in between. And I'm sure they told you, but, the second age is, you know, has some of the greatest stories really of all time. It's the the forging of the the rings of power, um, the rise of the Dark Lord Sauron. Um, contain the second age contains the the rise and fall of of Numenor, Tolkien's Atlantis, and uh, will eventually build to the last alliance of elves and men. Yeah, and I know you know JD and Patrick have talked about you know wanting this to be a show that works for all audiences, whether you're a total newcomer who has no familiarity with this at all, or you're someone who's like a hardcore nerd who like has quotes from the Silmarillion tattooed on your body. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Callum, how did you guys you know kind of want to approach this show so that it works for all of those audiences? Well, I think I was a latecomer to the party, but basically, you know, I think JD and Patrick had these stories to tell. They had this fifty-hour epic, as Lindsay has mentioned. Within that, you know, our role is to sort of support and 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 help them create that. And uh, you know, watching the finished product, I think they've they've done an, an amazing job. And you know, hopefully, we can do the same for the second season that's coming up in very short time. So, <laughs> going back to your earlier question about how we feel, I, I feel thrilled and so proud of what the team has put together. So happy to have done justice. Um, but you know, we start the second season and. And I think a little a little over a month. So I think we get to relax for an hour and then and then begin again. But uh, as a huge fan of the material, it, it's just it's so lovely to see them explore the depths of the you know these appendices and the texts that are there. Uh, and I just hope we can do it in fifty hours. To be honest, I think that's very well said. Um, yes, it you know I think it it is important. It was very important to us from the beginning that this story worked for the uninitiated as much as the diehard fans. And certainly those who know the legendarium backwards and forwards will find extra things in each frame. There's a lot of meaning in costumes and sets and in the way things are phrased in the score. And, uh, but those who have never read the books and never seen the movies should find a, a very wide on-ramp as well. And that the, the character stories are incredibly relatable and timeless, which is one of the things that makes Tolkien so special. Absolutely. And, you know, much of these first two episodes, you know, um, our entry point is sort of Galadriel, you know, um, who is the character that I think maybe many audiences will be most familiar with when the show starts. What interested you guys from a story perspective about sort of making her the the entry point for the series and sort of, you know, the the first, you know, few minutes of the of the first episode or, you know, sort of charting her story and sort of explaining, you know, kind of setting everything up? That's a good question. And, and JD and Patrick would certainly be more eloquent about it, I'm sure. But she's a very wise old elf and therefore ha- carries a lot of history with her and makes a good um, access point for that reason. But 
I have to say, we really do think of the show as an ensemble and um, mm. across the season, as you get to see more of it, or we hope you see more of it, that um, you will spend equal amounts of time with, with other characters in other realms. She certainly is one of the more known parts of the legendarium. She's immortal and gets to live on into the third age. And, and we meet her, you know, as the wise lady of Lothlorien. But I know JD and Patrick are really inspired by how hard earned her wisdom was and the way Tolkien writes about her and the way she talks about herself and being tempted by the ring. They found so pregnant with possibility for what her backstory and life in, in early years must have been. You can tell she's really been through it. And um, they were very inspired by that idea um, as, as a way into the second age. Yeah. And I, you know, like you mentioned, this is a truly ensemble show. And I love that in these first two episodes, we really get to sort of explore all these different corners of Middle Earth. We go to the Southlands, um, you know, we meet the Harfoots, you know, we spend time in Linden, you know, from a production standpoint, how did you sort of want to make sure that all of these different realms, you know, they feel cohesive, but they each have their own, you know, unique spirit where you're juggling, you know, all of these different stories. How did you sort of want to approach, you know, telling, like you said, it's a massive ensemble cast with, I think, 22 series regulars. Yes. Lots and lots of characters. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I will let Callum speak to this one a little bit uh, too, if you want to take a swing at it. Um, but, you know, yeah, we sure. sort of calmly try to take a deep breath and get all the worlds ready to shoot at the same time. But you want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it, what was exciting was you know from your well-known characters such as Galadriel through to some of the lesser-known characters, and the same can be said of the worlds. You know, we have worlds that we know of but haven't really explored in, in the way that they were in the Second Age, and uh, and we know where they end up. I, I think it was lovely to see our five worlds all prepared and studied and and gotten ready in exactly the same measure of detail and care and compassion. Um, so that we could float between each of those worlds and, and not a single one was sort of the, should we say, the, the courthouse scene. There was no gimmies. There was nothing that no. was you know, easy. It was all done with respect, passion, detail. And I think the, the finished uh, show pays testament to that fact that we can go from one place to the other, even if it's for 30 seconds or for its three, four, five minute scene. And everything is, is the same level of detail and, and, and excellence. And certainly, you know, from a production point of view, delivering on that was super satisfying. And, and then sitting back and watching the show, you, you, you get that. You can't help but notice there are no, you know, corners that were cut. Uh, and that's the same from every character to every extra to every world. You know, it was our, our hope that if you froze your TV, paused your TV, and you just, you know, walked out of your living room, walked back in, and you didn't know what was on, you could just tell in an instant what world you're in based on the color palette mm. and the shape language. And we really spent a lot of time working with our department heads on how to make each world feel distinct. And yes, part of a larger cohesive whole, but very much its own thing since each of these civilizations in the second age are um, at a really unique moment in their culture. Um, I think we all felt a lot of pressure to capture them richly and accurately and make them as different from one another as Tolkien, uh, you know, in the way that he described them. Yeah. So for each of you, do you have like a particular favorite like um, realm or area that you were or like a set even that you were like particularly excited <laughs> to see brought to life? It's hard to Ooh. pick favorites. I, you know, I, the Numenor set was very special. It, it was, you know, very detailed and elaborate. We had a working wharf and a floating spice market and there was incense burning and it had layers of storytelling. It was an older 
elven city with a human wand built on top of it. And it was obviously the first time that had been on, on film. So it, it definitely holds a special place in our hearts. But I have to say, I also love being in, in Casa Doom. Um, every time we were in those sets in the Dwarven world, I just had a smile on my face. Our, our characters are so charming and engaging. At least I found them incredibly charming and engaging. I, I just loved when we were there um, shooting. It's a fantastic world to be in in the show. Yeah, I would agree. I think I'd echo that. I was just thinking because of Gomez somewhere perhaps it was a surprise to me that I would enjoy it so much because I don't know, it felt a little familiar, but it, there was such a charm that was created there by the world, the design and the actors that, yeah, that was a love. It was a lovely place to go and hide in and amongst the madness down in the caves with the dwarves. I have to mm-hmm. say. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I love that we get to see it in its all its glory. It's so green, yes. and mm-hmm. flowing water. And I think, you know, I think that's one of the fun things about this show is I think, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the time of the the Lord of the Rings stories is almost post-apocalyptic by comparison mm-hmm. to the beauty that's right. and the splendor. I imagine that would be so much fun to explore creatively. It definitely is. And it was a big inspiration for our department heads and, um, you know, the opportunity to do something new. Um, the thing we always said was different, but familiar. It's got to be different because it's the second age, but it's familiar because it's still Middle Earth. And, you know, the, the cause of doom is a great example. It's just teeming with life and riches and this incredible population of dwarves at their height, which is so much fun to see compared to what you find in the third age when um, it's all but abandoned. Yeah, and these these first two episodes, uh, specifically the first episode, um, we actually get to spend some time in in Valinor, in in the Undying Lands, and mm-hmm. you know we 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 start there, mm-hmm. and then we we end with you know Galadriel, you know, um, deciding not to to continue west. I mean, this is, is something that looms large throughout Tolkien's work. You know, we we hear a lot about the Undying Lands. You know, we 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 see Frodo and Bilbo sailing west, but how did you guys want to approach actually, you know, depicting that on screen, you know, both in Galadriel's childhood and then, you know, when we see, you know, the skies opening up? It's very special, you know, um, to, to be able to have captured that. And, and um, we've tried to tease bits of it and make it as beautiful as, as Tolkien wrote it. And, you know, there's a little, a little glimpse there. Uh, I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't seen the pilot yet, but there in, in, uh, towards the latter part of the pilot. Um, but it's something we worked closely with our production designer on and our visual effects team and our Tolkien experts to try to do justice based on what Tolkien wrote. Yeah. And I know that, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, we, we get to see a little bit of first age stuff and we hear, you know, mentions of, of first age things. And I know that, you know, in making the show, you guys have the rights to everything in the Lord of the Rings books and mm-hmm. the appendices. Is that correct? Yep. Amazon acquired the rights to the Lord of the Rings books and the rights to the Hobbit. And then we um, together decided to make a second age story. That makes sense. So I'm curious, you know, when it comes to showing things that are, you know, predominantly, you know, first age things like, you know, we see the two trees or we hear mention of, you know, somebody like Feanor, how does that work as you're sort of figuring out, you know, working with those Tolkien experts to sort of figure out, you know, what to show and what to to bring to life with this particular show? Well, you know, the storytelling, obviously the showrunners, you know, they, they speak to a little bit more specifically to what exactly you know, the story is they want to tell and, and that all winds up being blessed by Amazon and the Tolkien estate. But from a legal perspective, it's very simple in that if it appears within the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, we have the rights to do it. And if it doesn't, we don't. So it there is, you know, that line that, that doesn't get crossed. Um, but thankfully, we've been working closely with the Tolkien estate, had their support and and been able to tell the story we wanted to tell. 
That makes total sense. So, you know, thinking back to, to filming these first two episodes, you know, for each of you, what's the scene or like the day on set that, that sticks out the most to you when you think back on, on that filming experience? Mm, good question. Uh, mine is easy. I think from myself, it was uh, being at the top of Mount Kidd in the South Island for two days filming a key sequence from episode seven. And it was something where we could only bring 30 people up onto the top of the mountain. It had never been filmed before. And sort of was a lovely culmination. Uh, The end of of shooting was in sight. And it was this beautiful, magical, touching scene. And just to be up there with our actors, who I've been lucky enough to now spend some time with and actually have no set, no special effects, no visual effects, just pure drama, a director, a DP. And I think we had one AC up there. And it was just pure filmmaking. I think Patrick did that day. And it was just lovely to be making something so simple and uh, story driven uh, and really, you know, the heart of the show are those moments. And it was it was just a lovely, a lovely moment. And um, hopefully people will, will feel the same when they see it. So I think that would be my if I had to choose a moment, that would be it. That's a good one. Um, there are lots of moments to choose from, but because we're talking about the pilot, the day that leaves to mind is the day that we shut down for COVID. We, um, (laughs) we, uh, we were, we were about 25 days into shooting and it was a very kind of, uh, unusual shoot day. We had the elves on the boat, uh, to the undying land. So this big, beautiful boat with a swan head covered in silver and mother of pearl on a big gimbal. Um, all the elves in this pearl armor doing this sort of coordinated, disrobing they're singing um you know there's the light and it's very emotional scene and um we have all these lighting effects that you know to 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 match up to what will be happening in the final story and meanwhile tom hanks was announcing he had covid and the nba was pushing their season and um everybody was sort of staring at their phones meanwhile morvith clark is giving this incredible performance that actually was so impressive it caused the crew to spontaneously applaud a couple of times it was a very very sort of heady out of body experience and then um of course we realized how much the world had changed and took a few months off filming and and then came back up and um were fortunate enough to be able to complete the season in what was basically a zero covid environment in new zealand which was just lucky beyond measure Oh my gosh, but what a scene to be, to be, I know, to have that heightened emotion. Yes, it was already very heightened. It was very, very heightened all the way around. Absolutely. All right, great. Well, I will let you guys go, but thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to talk with you. So that is our show. Our thanks to Benjamin Walker and executive producers, Lindsay Weber and Callum Green. And that's it for this episode of All Rings Considered. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Devin Kogan and at CM Holub. This episode of All Rings Considered is hosted by Devin Kogan and Christian Holub. Produced by Devin Kogan, Christian Holub, Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Lauren Klein, and Dalton Ross. Edited by Lauren Klein. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>